And this is our eighth study, eighth study, and we come to chapter two. <laughs> yes, I heard that. I heard that. Can't rush these things, brethren, you know that. So we come to chapter two. Let's read together verses one through seven. And I do endeavour to uh, to complete these verses in our study tonight. So chapter two, verses one through seven. Paul writes, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. This is God's wonderful word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these precious scriptures. Wonderful scriptures. Written so many centuries ago, but oh Lord, how precious is your word. It speaks directly to our hearts and lives Tonight, we might consider ourselves perhaps more sophisticated than the first century Colossian church. We might consider ourselves better educated. <laughs> Nevertheless, this word, as it was pertinent for them, is pertinent for us. And so grab hold of our attentions, we pray. Deliver us from pride or preconceptions of what we might understand these verses to say, to mean. Make us open, Lord, to what the Holy Spirit is saying to this church on the 9th of February 2017. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In the Western world, many believe that if there is a God, he is up there somewhere in some kind of supramundane, supernatural realm. And true enough, there is a sense in which God is beyond us, a far away God. And here, 
in our world, the real world as it were, we get on with life on the natural level. We hardly expect, even as Christians, for God miraculously to intervene in the real world of sense perception. However, the situation is very different when you go to other parts of the world. In other cultures, many believe that there isn't only a supreme God up there and a natural world down here, but in between there are whole hierarchies and tiers of authorities, principalities, powers and various kinds of spirits who dominate people's lives. Until recently, we sophisticated folk in the Western world tended to exclude this middle tier. But in the last two or three decades, it seems to me at least, there has been a massive change in the way Western people view the world. Indeed, we're in a time when people, some of them, like you and I, sophisticated, often opt for one or more of the so-called alternative spiritualities that are on offer, and which are believed to occupy this middle ground, this middle tier between the supreme God and the natural world within which we live. And therefore, the reading of tarot cards, for instance, or having one's aura purified, for instance, or visiting sites of so-called harmonic convergence, that we might get in sync with powerful earth forces. These have become respectable, have they not? Mother gods and earth goddesses, it seems to me, are in vogue these days. Here in Colossians chapter 2, Paul was confronted uh, with a world full of elemental spirits. Spirits that many believed controlled their lives and needed, therefore, to be respected and even placated. And that mindset, perhaps somewhat inevitably, was infiltrating the Christian church. It was one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. Paul here offers hope by explaining why Christians don't need to be controlled by these powers of the, the middle tier, so to speak. In Christ, Paul maintains that there is freedom from such bondage because there's fullness of life. And so a deepening knowledge of Christ is what the Apostle Paul felt these Colossians were in need of. That's why I've entitled tonight's study, A Deeper Knowledge. Brethren, what was good for the first century church in Colossae, I believe to be good for the 21st century church in Pontypridd. A deeper knowledge of Christ.
Paul reminds these Christians, doesn't he, in verse 1, that he is laboring on their behalf. He uses that expression, he's struggling for them. I like that. I'll go further. I understand that. You speak to any minister of the gospel, any pastor worth his or her salt, and they, because of the call of God, will, like the Apostle Paul, struggle for those under their care. Here we have the Apostle Paul with his pastoral heart struggling for these Christian brothers and sisters. He struggles in prayer for them, doesn't he? How often he refers to to wrestling in prayer. He often speaks of praying for the brethren. He struggles for them in in his writing uh, for them, in his letters, in his epistles. He is concerned that they grow and mature and are not put off course by the false teaching that is threatening the church. And the church, of course, in Laodicea included, it seems, in this epistle. God raise up more leaders like the Apostle Paul. Leaders who have such a call, the call of God, upon their lives for a particular brethren, for a particular community, for a particular area or country, that they struggle for those people. And perhaps God is calling you and I to be like the Apostle Paul. He might lay people upon our hearts in such a way that we might struggle for those people in our praying. We might struggle for them, perhaps in our attempts to communicate with them, maybe converse, maybe email, maybe correspond in whatever way is appropriate. Struggle for people's hearts and lives and souls. That's what's required these days. Too many, it seems to me, are moving into the ministry because it's a mere job. It's an occupation. Something else to do. God save us from such as these. We want those who are called of God and are therefore in ministry because they can do no other. These are the ones we need because these are the ones who, like the Apostle Paul, struggle for those under their care. The question occurs to me, how do we reach the point of freedom, the point of sufficiency in Christ that the Apostle Paul is endeavouring to encourage the Colossians into? Well, notice first of all that uh, we are to be, verse 2, encouraged in heart. Encouraged in heart. Paul is struggling for these Colossian Christians that they might be encouraged in heart. I like that. Do you ever know of anybody who has died because of too much encouragement? 
No, I don't either. It can be argued that we don't actually need friendly churches these days. We need churches where people discover friends. There's a difference. I believe there is. In friendly churches, you get a nice warm welcome and and, and that's it. It's maybe a bye-bye afterwards. Nobody really ever invites you home. Nobody takes you out for a coffee. Nobody offers to babysit or, or to help with the ironing. All we can say is that that was a nice, friendly, warm church. But brethren, we need more than friendly churches. Wouldn't you agree? We need more than friendly churches. We need encouraging communities of Christian men and women of God who are being transformed to be like Jesus. And so transformed, they do what came naturally to Christ. They encourage. Encouraged of heart. I love those Christians, don't you? That once you've left them, you're encouraged. <laughs> it's a strange thing. Even when you visit them to encourage them in their sickness, you come away feeling more blessed than they. And you wonder, how on earth did that happen? I was the one supposed to be doing the encouraging. <laughs> and yet I was blessed. They're the ones we need. Paul writes that they might be encouraged of heart. He adds there, notice verse 2, he adds united in love. Interesting, Paul puts encouragement and, and a sense of united in love together. Churches that view love as an optional extra, I believe, have forgotten their true identity in Christ. Does not the Bible teach the greatest of these is love. Notice that there is a purpose for this love. It is so that they have the full riches of complete understanding. Verse 2. That they might be united in love. For what reason? That they might have the full riches of complete understanding. Paul wants them to be Christians who are full of love, but also Christians who grow in their faith in an intellectual way, so that they appreciate all that they have in Christ. If only we could put these two together. United in love and full of the riches of complete understanding. I say that because in my experience, sometimes we meet groups of Christians who are either, who are loving, but seem unable to think coherently or biblically about their faith in the world. On the other extreme, I recently heard of a church where somebody asked whether the banquet in Luke chapter 14 was going to be held on earth or in heaven. And so the church had a big debate about that uh, question. Interesting question, perhaps, but fundamentally, who cares in the final analysis? But this church cared, and it cared, it cared so much so that they suffered a six-way split. Six 
way split because of it. Beggars belief, doesn't it really? Some Christians, I'm sorry to say, have been deeply traumatized by splits in the church. Often splits over trivialities. Folk took a hard line on something that was perhaps much to do about nothing. I suppose you're familiar with the old adage, Pharisees always major on minors. <laughs> Beware of those who major on minors. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He wants them to be united in love, but also at the same time full of the riches of complete understanding. A sense of spiritual balance is being communicated here, is it not? And yet in these days it seems to me we're polarizing between extremes. And God is trying to bring us together that we might be balanced, united in love, and yet understanding our position in Christ. We need Christians who love God with all our minds and hearts and equally love their neighbours too. Paul continues, I want you to have complete understanding. Why do you think, why is that so important, understanding? Is it that we might become a wise guy or perhaps a smart aleck? Well, no. Paul wants us to, to have complete understanding, verse 2. Notice that we might know the mystery of God. Hmm. This is a little tricky for us, isn't it? Because we think of a mystery as a puzzle. But in the New Testament, mystery means something rather different altogether. A mystery in the New Testament is something God had previously hinted at in one way or another, but now has clearly revealed. So, from an Old Testament perspective, it was a mystery. God had hinted at it. God had perhaps uh, alluded to it. But in many ways, it kept his cards close to his chest, so to speak. But it dropped hints. But in the New Testament, it had been revealed. It was no longer a mystery per se. It had been revealed <coughs> The mystery was that right from the very beginning, God did not simply intend to make only the Jewish race as his chosen people. Rather, God's plan A, from the very beginning, friends, God's plan A was to bring salvation to the whole world, to everybody, hallelujah. The Jews' election and their very special status was for a purpose. Now, in the Old Testament, that was something of a mystery. In the New Testament, of course, that purpose was revealed in Christ. That through the Jews, through God's chosen people, salvation, in and through Christ, might come to all people. Isn't that something? And so Paul says, now, I want you to be encouraged in heart. I want you to be united in love that you might have the full riches of complete understanding and know this mystery. The mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory. 
It's so fundamentally important, friends, that we know about the mystery. Because the mystery is Christ. The whole of the Old Testament was, still is, friends, pointing forwards to Christ. Jesus is the key to unlocking the Old Testament treasures and understanding what its big picture is all about. Indeed, Jesus is the key to life itself. That's why Paul writes in verse 3, Jesus is, is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I like that. How sad it is these days, friends, when people are pursuing treasures in everything else and everyone else except Christ. And yet in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When we get Christ, so to speak, there's a sense in which we've hit the jackpot. We've hit the jackpot. He is what everything is ultimately about. Life, the universe, everything is about Jesus. Let's just meditate upon that for a moment. Everything is about Jesus. I used to walk the corridors of academia. Many of you have. Surrounded by contemporary students who were pursuing knowledge. Who wanted to, to, to know what life was all about. Well, I studied for a time the philosophy of, of religion. Nothing like studying with, with those who are studying philosophy, is there? Bless their hearts. Well, they spend hours and hours and hours talking, longing for knowledge. Usually they're just going round in circles. See, that's what philosophy does, really. It goes round in circles. It doesn't really come to any ultimate conclusion. But here, my friends, here in Christ, we have the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How precious is that? Do we understand that? Does that genuinely register in our hearts? That in Christ, all that we could possibly need for knowledge and wisdom is ours. Hallelujah. Christ is what the very structure of reality is all about. And oh, how I pray that my philosophy friends would find Christ. Rather than continue the rather depressing discipline of going round in circles. Hypothesis after hypothesis after hypothesis. And drawing to no ultimate conclusion. Because without Christ, there is not one. Paul writes, brethren, I want you, I want you to have the full riches of complete understanding. These riches were a mystery. But hallelujah, in Christ, they are revealed to us. Isn't that something? This, my friends, should drive every Christian to the Word of God as often as we humanly possibly can. 
Because if we understand what's being communicated here, then we want to know more of Him. We want to go deeper with Him. We want to be submerged in Christ. And there's no better way than to be in the Scriptures. Submerged in the Word of God. Hallelujah. Paul is saying that all that could be anticipated elsewhere, all that could be longed for by the human heart can be found in Jesus. It is all in him. He continues, verses 4 and 5, I tell you this, so he, he tells us this, he tells us why, that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Now this is fascinating, isn't it? Brethren, is this why many professing Christians these days are being deceived? Many are. Liberal theology is on the increase. No question about that. People are going off on theological tangents here, there, and everywhere, majoring on minors, so to speak. And perhaps it's because they are not in Christ the way they ought to be. Paul says, I tell you this, this mystery about Christ, that you might not be deceived by sound Fine-sounding arguments. The inference, of course, is that there were those so deceived in the first century church in Colossae. Arguably, of course, they had an excuse. You see, they didn't have the New Testament scriptures like you and I have. If they were privy to the scriptures, they were most probably uh, the, 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 the law of Moses, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Maybe they may have had one or two Psalms. Maybe they've had snippets of the prophets. But no more than that. Compared to you and I, friends, they were having to, to, to make do with, 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 with far less of the inspired word. And so... Perhaps we can understand why they wrestled and struggled so and so easily found themselves deceived by fine-sounding arguments. Arguably, there's no excuse for you or I, is there? We have the full canon of the Word of God, don't we? We have all 66 books. And in addition to that, we have so many commentaries. We have so many devotions. My goodness me, there's so many books on my shelf. I have no excuse. And yet within the confines of the Christian church these days, there are many who are being deceived by fine-sounding arguments. Paul says, I want you to be submerged in Christ. If you are so submerged then you won't be so, so deceived. He goes on, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. He's alluding to the fact that he's praying for these dear ones. He's struggling for them. He says, I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith is in Christ. That's good to, to read, isn't it? In the midst of all this deception, clearly, there are amongst those within the, the ranks of this church who are firm in their faith in Christ. Here is strong, robust faith. A faith that is assured of its resources in Christ. 
the Christ who is sufficient for every situation. If that is so, then there's no need to turn to other spirits. It's clear, isn't it? If we are firm in Christ, there's no need for us to turn to other spirits. And so, my friends, being submerged in Christ, being deeper in our knowledge of Christ, this is the greatest cure of syncretism. Syncretism. Remember from our earlier studies, you take a little bit of this faith, a little bit of that religion, and you uh, take a little bit of, uh, of that spirituality and you throw them all together into a big pot, into a mix, and you find the best for, from everything. Syncretism, it's, it's kind of a, uh, a sophisticated universalism. Nothing new. It's been uh, thrown upon us in the 21st century church, but it's nothing new. Here we have it in the 1st century church. It was afflicting the Colossians. The argument was, yes, of course, you can have Jesus, but you can also have help from this spirit, or help from that demigod, or help from that idol. Throw it all together in the big mix, and you'll get the best of all the worlds. That's the lies of the enemy, of course. But if, he, if we are in Christ, then we have all that we need. So in a syncretistic, pluralistic world, a world not unlike the Colossians world, we are called to grow and develop in Christ. Verse 6, he says, So then, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord... Continue. Notice that. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. Interesting word in the Greek there, live. Literally, perhaps better translated, walk. Continue to walk in Him. I like that, don't you? It helps me understand what living in Christ means. I walk in Him. What does that mean? Well, I, I place my, my footsteps in his. <laughs> I understand that, don't you? How do I live in Christ? Well, I place my footsteps in his. So what did Christ do? I place my footsteps in his. <laughs> and that's how we walk with Christ. Walk in his footsteps. The Apostle Paul, notice, mixes his metaphors a little in verse 6. He speaks about being rooted. Clearly, he's referring to trees, isn't he? If you are rooted, you're like a tree. Interesting thing about strong trees. Strong trees put down their roots deep. And those roots keep growing, friends. Until they find the refreshing waters, don't they? They grow, put them down deep and they grow and find the waters. And that's what Paul is alluding to. He says, I want you to be well rooted like a tree. That you might tap in to that fountain of living water. That you might grow. He, he, he uses the expression of being built, built up. He, he must be referring, of course, to a building. Now, you and I know, of course, that if a, if a building is to stand, 
well for a long time, its foundations must go down well and hit good bedrock. And so that's what he's alluding to. He says, I want you to walk with Christ. Put down your roots. So you tap into that fountain of living water. You be built up. Make sure your foundations are deep and solid on that bedrock that is Christ, the cornerstone that is Jesus, the foundation that's already been laid. Clearly, friends, these are pictures of stability, pictures of growth, pictures of development. That's what the Apostle Paul wants for this church. That's what Jesus Christ wants for us. That we might be strong. We might be built on the foundation that is Christ. That our roots might go down deep, tapping in to that fountain of living water. It is tragic, is it not, when you see pictures of children, adults even, who are physically malnourished. You see these pictures of starvation and their stomachs are, are swollen, not because they're full of food, but because they are malnourished. And they don't grow normally. What is more tragic is when you see Christians who have been Christians for years but are spiritually malnourished. Christians for years but they have never spiritually grown. Nothing new here. Paul wrote to the church in in Corinthians, didn't he? He says, I I feed you with the milk of the word. Like babes in Christ. You should be on the meat. But I feed you the milk. Because you've never grown. I sometimes go back to churches that I visited months, years ago. To bring the word of God. How sad it is to see the Christians who are, as they were, months, years ago, same mindsets, same attitudes, same indisciplines, same petty argumentative spirits, same critical hearts, same old, same old. And you think, oh, dear, 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 dear. Christians, who have never grown. It must break the heart of Jesus, mustn't it? As he looks down from heaven and says, Hey, I've provided you all that you need and more to grow. But you've not grown. Christians who are still in spiritual kindergarten, Christians who are like spiritual Peter Pans in a never-never land of spiritual adolescence. They have never grown. (laughs) Brethren, what Paul is saying here is to these Colossians, I don't want you to be like that. I want you to grow. Verse 7b, rooted in the faith as you were taught. That's interesting, isn't it? 
It's clear from the Apostle Paul's perspective that these Colossian Christians had been taught. They had been taught. They had had the word. They had been encouraged. And he says that you might be rooted in the faith as you were taught. No excuse it seems. No excuse. We've no excuse, have we? Gosh, you think of the spiritual heritage here in Koipenmai Community Church. Weeks, months, years of the Word of God being preached, being expounded, being explained, the Word of God being interpreted and interjected into our hearts and lives. Brethren, we have no excuse. If any should be, as the Apostle Paul expected of these Colossians, rooted firm, strong on the foundation, then surely we ought to be. How sad it is when we come across Christian brothers and sisters who have been Christians for years, but have never grown. Why? Because they are not rooted in Christ. Paul says, I need for you to go deeper in Christ. I grant you, brethren, it demands discipline. It demands time. It demands effort. But oh, my friends, it's necessary. And let's be honest, we can never outgive God, can we? And the more we give that discipline, that time and effort to Him, in His Word, the more He gives to us. What comes from such a church? Well, Paul says so. Thankfulness. He says, in the faith, root in the faith that you were taught, so rooted, he says, overflowing with thankfulness. Oh God, give me a church like that. Thankfulness. An attitude of gratitude, the Reverend Stanley Banks used to call this. A church with an attitude of gratitude. You know, friends, a lot of Christians I know live, at least metaphorically live, up in Cumbria. Yes. They live just north of Keswick. Now, it's only a little village just north of Keswick, but there are many, many Christians I know who live there. Do you know the name of the village? You may have passed through it. It's called Unthank. The village of Unthank. It's there. And metaphorically, I know many Christians who live in the village of Unthank. Bless them. No gratitude. No thankfulness. Just perhaps a, an immature spirit that is critical, divisive. Paul says, this isn't for you. 
I wonder how many of us here tonight are cynical. Now you're far too spiritual to be cynical, aren't you? Well, I have a confession to make. In some ways I've been a pastor long enough to make me cynical. <laughs> Awful? Terrible? I know. Pray for me. Pray for me. You see, occasionally I see someone approaching me and I think to myself, Lord, for what I'm about to receive, make me truly thankful. <laughs> Attitude of cynicism. See, the problem is, I know these people to be negative. I know these people to be carping. I know these people to be bitter. I know from experience that generally the first words, sentences out of their mouths will be critical. Makes one a little cynical. Father, have mercy on me. But friends, if we are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, the first words out of our mouth will never be critical words. There'll be words of thankfulness. Thankfulness. And the Apostle Paul says, this is how you ought to be. Rooted and grounded in Jesus. This is how you ought to be. Put down your roots in Him. A deeper knowledge of the mystery revealed that is Christ. God make us a church like this. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your very precious word, but challenging word. Allow, help us each of us, Lord, to allow your spirit to search our hearts. And if, Father, our spiritual growth is not what it ought to be, if our attitude is not one of thankfulness, that, oh, Father, forgive us. And by your Spirit's power in our lives, might we be rooted afresh, grounded in Christ. Oh, Lord, as we've sung, I want to be out of my death in Jesus' love. To this end we pray. Amen. Amen.